Let's read this psalm together. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth from iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, that I may be clean, and wash me, that I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So this is a psalm of repentance, to repent or to turn from. It's a word that is not often used by the world outside of the church. And we currently exist in a very specific cultural context that is not only moving beyond encouraging its people to indulge in the things that please them, but we're actually moving into a point where it is demanding that people indulge in the things that please them. And so there's this cultural context that we currently exist in that actually would look at repentance and say that we need to do the exact opposite of. So repentance is this exact opposite of that ideal. Uh, to repent is an active decision to move away from something and to actively move towards something else. The mode or means of repentance might look different from person to person, um, but repentance will always look like for the Christian dying to, denying oneself to move towards Jesus. Repentance will always require us to acknowledge that we contribute to the brokenness of this world in our sin, and it will always require us to move forward to seek a life that seeks after God and seeks to love those around us. And, and I really want to drive home this point really quickly as we're getting started that repentance is not just one movement, because oftentimes we look at repentance as just one movement, as moving away from sin. When we have this tendency to think of repentance merely as acknowledging our sin without setting our eyes upon the cross, we actually kind of reveal that we have this little sneaky idea of works-driven forgiveness. We believe that if we acknowledge our sin, but we don't set our eyes on the cross, that we have repented. But David, in this psalm, paints a different picture of what true repentance looks like. I hope this morning that as that we dive into what repentance looks like for the Christian, that we would not only 
run from our sin, but we would run towards the cross. We would run towards Jesus. We would set our eyes upon him. So a little bit of history to this psalm. It's important to recognize that David, king of Israel, wrote this song, this psalm, this poem. Um, it's important to recognize the circumstances that were involved in writing this song, because this psalm, because it, it only further illuminates the importance of God's grace and mercy in the midst of when we not only recognize our sin, but also consciously repent of it. Um, David is arguably one of the most well-known historical men in the Bible. And, and throughout the decades, the church has encouraged men to be more like David because of his courageous actions in the Old Testament. And while it's a great thing to aspire to be courageous in the midst of trying times, we need to remember that David was just like us, broken, sinful, and in need of a merciful and grace-giving God. David's brokenness was given full spotlight in 2 Samuel 11. David saw a woman whom he deemed beautiful, sent messengers after her, and slept with her. Both he and the woman were married to separate people. This was an adulterous affair. And not only that, I think it's often sometimes missed that this was also a clear abuse of power. David, the king of Israel, when the king of Israel sends messengers to your door, do you think you have any other decision than to say, okay, and go? David abused his authority and a power to get his, his authority and a power to get what he wanted. This man, who is most well known for his courage and bravery, did what could only be described as cowardly and abusive. The story goes on. Bathsheba, the woman, becomes pregnant, and in order to cover up all this mess, David has her husband Uriah killed on the battlefield. It's awful. It is awful, and I hope that. We've driven home this point that David has committed some horrendous sins. We cannot, we should not sugarcoat it. I don't want this sermon to be about David's sin or the historical moment, but I think it's important to understand exactly the context by which this is being written in because after this, God sends Nathan, a prophet, to go and confront David. And this is what is written. A lot of your Bibles might say above verse 1 to the choir master, Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him and had uh, gone to Bathsheba. David, after being confronted with his sin, repents. And this is to be a constant posture for us as Christians. The Christian life is not a life that is built upon a single prayer of salvation or a single moment of repentance. Rather, for the Christian, repentance is a lifestyle. And Paul articulates this in Romans 7, 21 through 25. He says, So I find this to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is a constant battle. We spent a good amount of time talking about behind the scenes of this psalm. 
The beauty of God's word, though, is that it shows us how to go beyond this. We can read David's psalm of repentance and glean a little bit of what it looks like to be a humble Christian who walks with a posture of repentance. And I want to break this down. I I believe we can break down this psalm into five parts. I read a lot of commentaries on this psalm, and I saw it broke down in a lot of different ways. Um, And ultimately, as I was praying through it, this is what I feel like God— this is what God wanted communicated this morning, is these five parts of repentance that at least we see in Psalm 51. And it goes like this. Here's the five. Repentance, one, begins when we gaze at a holy God. Number two, repentance brings a true and honest acknowledgement of our sins. Number three, repentance shows us the depths of God's grace and forgiveness. Number four, repentance shows others of God's love. And number five, repentance leads to honest and humble worship of God. So, that's the, that's the five parts. I am somebody who likes bullet points. I am a note taker when it comes to sermons. So if you are a note taker, those are going to be the five pieces. And I'm going to do my best job to give you when we are in a new part because that's how I like it when others preach as well. So part one, or uh, point number one, repentance begins when we gaze at our holy God. To start this psalm of repentance, David says in verses 1 and 2, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Repentance will always begin when we set our eyes upon God. David did not even recognize his sin until he had Nathan sent to him. God had sent Nathan the prophet to him, and and then finally David had a recognition of his sin. But you see, part of the insidiousness of sin is that we don't even recognize our sin until we come face to face with God. Um, Well-known pastor and author Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves, and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. There is only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim and glimmering conception of God. And so this is so important to recognize that as we begin David's psalm, it is because he looks at God. It is because God pulls him away and and says, look to me, that he begins to recognize his sin. And what happens when David gazes at God? His immediate posture is, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. We can't even begin to ask God for his mercy until we can set our eyes upon his goodness and who he is. In our natural state of brokenness, it is the world that revolves around us. God is not even on the peripheral of our vision. However, God pulls at our hearts. He sets our eyes upon him, and when we recognize his goodness and his holiness, we have no other posture than to go before him and go, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O God. This is the God who set the stars in the sky. He determined the depths of the ocean and knows every single creature that swims in the depths of the ocean. The God who made us people in his image and breathed purpose into our life. 
That's the God who paid the price for our rebellion. He paid the price for the rebellion of the very creation he made by taking on flesh, living the perfect life, dying the death that we all deserved. It's the God who is quick to mercy and grace and forgiveness and slow to anger. This is the God that when we behold him, in our brokenness, we have no other posture than to go, have mercy on me, O God. It's important that when we think of repentance, when we think of repenting and running from our sin, that we first think of God. We give him the first place. It gives us a realistic understanding of our sin. We, we, we are not allowed to set the bar on how sinful we are or are not. That is God's standard, not our own. Another reason why it is so important for us to set God first in this process is that when we read these two verses, we can know and we can confidently say that God is merciful. God is steadfast in love. God is abundant in mercy. He is able to blot out our transgressions. He is good. He is great. He is faithful and he is forgiving. We can pray the prayer that David is praying right here in these first two verses. Why? Because of who God is. Repentance begins when we set our eyes upon Jesus. Secondly, repentance brings an acknowledgement of our sin. So as we set our eyes upon God, we then understand our sin. Verses 3 through 5 say this, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in my iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David moves from attributes and truths about God and begins to acknowledge his guilt. Because once we set our eyes on God, we cannot help but see our brokenness. For David, it said that his sin was ever before him. It is that sunk feeling in your stomach when you have been caught. I will be 33 years old next week, and I can still close my eyes and remember those moments when I am at home and my dad yells out my name from halfway across the house, and I can already tell by the tone of his voice that I am in trouble. I can still hear that. And I can still feel that pit feeling in my stomach when I know the exact reason why I'm in trouble. <laughs> by, by some of your nods, you're like, yeah, me too. <laughs> I cannot imagine the pit in David's stomach as he penned this psalm as Nathan the prophet came to him and called him out on his sin. When he truly understood the depth of his sin. And I want to make a quick note here. This isn't in my notes, so, but I feel the important need to point this out because I, there's a portion here that I think sometimes is misunderstood, is that when he says that I have sinned against you and only you, that sometimes we think that that somehow dismisses our need to ask for forgiveness from other people and those who we have sinned against. But we need to understand something, that when we set our eyes upon God, when we recognize his goodness and our brokenness, when we recognize that we have sinned against God, then we understand that we have contributed to the brokenness that has separated God and his creation. 
This is not David somehow trying to skirt his responsibilities from Bathsheba or Uriah. This is instead recognizing that not only, not only do we sin against God, when we sin against other people, we are sinning against God. That is, and that should just make us sick. For what it's worth. All right, back to my notes. Some may ask, how could David, the one that we look to, the courageous David, have committed such an atrocious act against Bathsheba and her husband? How could this man, who is described as a man after God's own heart, commit adultery and murder? How could this happen? Jesus actually clears this up pretty easily, actually. He said, whenever you look lustfully at somebody, you have committed adultery. Whenever you have hate in your heart towards someone, you commit murder. And while David's version of adultery and murder in this situation obviously had bigger and more immediate consequences to those he was around, we need to understand that sin is a heart condition. It begins in our hearts. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. David sees and says this in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It is a condition of the fall that happened way back in Genesis 3, that men and women would be born into sin. Our brokenness is from day number one. It might seem redundant to this point, but stick with me. I feel that when we come by these passages of Scripture, we, we can sometimes act like spectators towards someone else's sin, as if we're not somehow consumed by the same root problem that drove David to that sin. It is really easy to look at circumstances and naively believe that we are above the need of repentance. It's easy to look at other people's circumstances and think, well, that's somebody else's problem. They need to deal with that. Um, so I work with the youth group at my home church. We do small groups, and I get to sit in with small groups and sit down with students. And one of the questions that I love to ask small groups of middle and high schoolers is, if someone were to come up to you and ask you the question, why are you a Christian, what would you say? What would you say? What would you say? Why are you a Christian? Um, one of the things that I love about asking this question with middle schoolers and high schoolers is you get a whole bunch of different answers. Um, it, it, it goes all over the place. And sometimes I get, well, I go to church every week, or well, my parents are Christians, or uh, I listen to Christian music all the time, or um, all these different answers. And all these different things are good things, right? These are all good things. It's good to have Christian parents. It's good to listen to music that helps you focus in on God. Like, that's, that's great. Uh, it's good to go to church every week. These are not what saves you. These are not the things that make you a Christian. These are not the things that will save you. Paul, in his letter to Romans, had to remind the Jewish population in Rome of this exact thing. When, when Paul was writing his letter to uh, the church in Rome, there was a, a really interesting split that was going on between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And in Romans 2, he's specifically talking to the Jewish Christians in Rome, and he called them out because they had this feeling that they just had to uh, focus in on things outside of Jesus as the things that saved them. They believed that they were right with God because of their following of the law or because of circumcision or because they grew up proclaiming the law, the five, the, the Torah. You need to understand that we are broken 
sinful people in need of a good, good God, and we have a good God. Jesus paid the price for our sins. We are saved because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, not because of any of the works that we have done. It can be very easy to look at David with a, a nose turned up, snobbishly going, well, I would never do such a thing, when the very same root problem is in our hearts, taking the good things that God gives us and turning them into idols. But it doesn't end there, right? Repentance does not end there. Repentance does not end with us just turning away from our sin. Point number three, repentance shows us the depths of God's grace and forgiveness. We are now at the part of the psalm that is water to the soul that is dying of thirst. In verses 1 and 2 were the man dying of thirst. In verses 3 through 5 was the recognition that the man was thirsty. He needed something. Then verses 6 through 12 is the cool water on the tongue. It makes me feel like I'm back in high school playing football and it's two days and I am super thirsty and I finally get that drink of water. Let's read these verses together, and I pray that it is nourishing to our soul. Behold, you delight in the truth of the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop that I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You could honestly take any one of these verses and preach a sermon on them. You, you could do it. Um, but I, I want to remain faithful to the psalm as a whole and, and to preach this psalm as a whole. But, um, but, but it is incredible that this part of David just recognizing he, he gazes upon God. He looks to God. He recognizes his brokenness, his need um, for mercy and forgiveness, and then goes before God and pleads and asks him for that forgiveness, and God is faithful to do that. I think sometimes we imagine God as this authority figure who forgives out of this begrudging obligation, that he forgives because yeah, I guess I have to. Okay, you, you sinned again. You know, keeping a tally, but I'm going to forgive you because I'm God, and that's what I do. No. No, God forgives out of the joy of his heart. It is his joy to forgive and hand out mercy. If, if you are a reader, I want to recommend a book to you called Gentle and Lowly by, by Dane Ortland. Who, who talk, like this whole book is basically about this truth, but I want to read a quote to you about this, about the depths of God's grace and mercy, because I, this book came out last year, and I've already read it like three times, because I just need to be reminded over and over and over again of this, but listen to this quote. Jesus doesn't want us to draw on his grace and mercy only because it vindicates his atoning work. He wants us to draw on his grace and mercy because it is who he is. He drew near to us in the incarnation so that his joy and ours could rise and fall together. His in giving grace and mercy and ours in receiving it. I'm not saying we don't mourn our sin and the consequences of our sin, but I think that we need to have a right understanding of God's mercy and forgiving us, that it, it produces a desire and a push for holiness, and God has joy 
in the sinner who comes to him. There is joy in that. The well of God's grace is infinite. Like the contemporary hymn states, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Or it's like Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who who is forgiven little, loves little. The cost of our sin is death, atonement. Jesus paid that price on the cross. God gives out grace and mercy, not out of begrudging obligation, but out of the gladness of his character and who he is. There is one more verse in particular in this section that stood out to me. Um, Out of this entire psalm, as as I was reading it, as as I received the prompt uh, to preach a psalm that had encouraged me, caused me to worship God deeper, this verse in particular stood out to me in this. It's verse 8. It says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let me tell you, I have broken a few bones in my life. I can tell you that in that moment, I did not rejoice. I did not rejoice when I caught a baseball with my face. I I did not rejoice when I my last football game of my senior year, the last two minutes of the football game, I got my hand caught on a piece of equipment and broke a bone in my hand. Did not rejoice. However, David, in the depth of his mourning, in the darkest moment of his life, in the recognition of the sin he had committed, recognizes this very important truth that God never wastes a a pain. From the sins that we have committed, to the sins that have been committed to us, to the effect that sin has had in our natural world, God is in the process of redeeming all of them. We get an opportunity to walk faithfully in that truth. The process of repentance, while it is difficult, because it requires us to acknowledge our sin and brokenness, it is also It is also what God produces, it is what God uses to produce joy in our hearts and in our lives. When we as Christians have a posture of repentance, we will see our broken bones sing for joy at God's goodness. That brings me to part number four. And this is something, I think that this is sometimes where we stop when it comes to repentance, right? We stop and we go, gaze upon God. I, I, I recognize the brokenness of my sin. And then I recognize God's forgiveness and goodness. But David goes on. This, this totally caught me over these last couple of days as I was reading through this passage over again and praying through it. I, like, I missed this. I missed this. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is, this is incredible. But God, but God uses repentance to show his love to others outside of us. It is not just a repentance starts with us and God, but it becomes an outward thing really quickly. So check this out. We, we think of repentance, um, and we just kind of leave it at that. But verse 13 through 15 kind of te- paints a different picture. So let's read this. Verses 13 through 15. 
Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. I had to reread this section a few times to kind of wrap my brain around it, because in my mind, the heart of repentance was just between the Christian and God. And as I'm reading this, David makes it clear that when we have a heart, a po- when we have a heart of repentance, when we have a posture of repentance, we are bound to overflow. We are bound to spill over the joy that we have experienced to those who are around us. And I, and I know when we read this, it might seem obvious, but sometimes we like to place certain doctrines and certain theologies and certain practices in these little vacuums and silos, when in reality they actually kind of blend together. Repentance if we are in the practice of repentance, if, we, if it is a rhythm of our natural lives, there will be a natural evangelical outflow in our lives. If, if you wrestle with evangelizing to people, telling other people about Jesus, maybe ask yourself the question, am I in the regular process of repentance? Am I in the regular process of looking to God's holiness and recognizing my bro- brokenness and recognizing the depth of, of God's goodness. Um, I, I was challenged one time. Uh, this is something that we like to, to teach back at our church in Peshtigo, and it's just the gospel, the good news of Jesus, right? The gospel. We are called to be gospel-centered people, people who are, who are overflowing with, with the goodness of, of God's goodness and, and his good news. If we struggle with telling non-believers the gospel, um, people who don't know Jesus the gospel, if we struggle with telling them the gospel, we have to ask the question, are we in the regular habit of telling our brothers and sisters the gospel? Um, because we sometimes think of evangelizing as just something that we do, that a Christian does to a non-believer, and we kind of leave it at that. But evangelizing is something that we're called to do to each other. We should be in the regular practice of constantly reminding each other of the gospel. And, and if you're having troubles telling other brothers and sisters in Christ the gospel, if you're not in the regular practice of telling each other the gospel, then maybe are you practicing telling yourself the gospel? Are you in the regular practice and habit of proclaiming the gospel to yourself? Because to the person who is constantly in the practice of telling themselves the gospel, how could they not overflow that to their brothers and sisters who also share in the same joy of the gospel? And in that, if we are a people, if we are a people who are in the constant practice of telling each other the gospel, how could we not be people who want to share this good news to a broken and dying world? One of my favorite sayings from a song is that glass can only spill what it contains. Um, an anecdote with this. I remember one time when I was in high school, uh, our youth group would go down to Chicago to help feed the homeless. And we would do this once a year in the summertime. And what we would do is we would prepare by packing bag lunches um, with food. And then um, each bag lunch would have a pair of socks. And Zoe, did you go on these? Yeah, you did? Okay, by the way, that's my sister. Also Max's sibling. So... <laughs> um, 
So Zoe also did this, but um, the, the Chicago homeless outreach. We would go down to Chicago, and we would go, and we'd just basically get dropped off in downtown Chicago, and we would go with an adult leader and hand out uh, bag lunches and socks to homeless. And we would hand them out to them, and then we would tell them the gospel. We would pray for them if, if, they, if they let us, um, and that would be that. And, and there were um, plenty of opportunities to pray with people. We got to do it. It was really cool. Handed out plenty of bag lunches, huge blessing. And of course, in high school, you know, being from, I, I grew up in Marinette, Wisconsin, which is, you know, smaller town compared to Chicago, obviously. Um, you get pretty stoked about getting to go to Chicago for, for a day. And so, of course, we would plan it out. And we'd go somewhere awesome for dinner. And what stood out to me the most from this one trip is we were waiting to get, we were waiting in line to get into the restaurant that we were going to go and eat at. And so we were excited. The day was over. We had handed out tons of bag lunches. And I'm going to be honest with you, I can't remember I, I don't really have memories of handing out the bag lunches and the socks. I know we did it. I know we got to pray with people. Praise God. I am sure he used that in incredible ways. But what stood out to me was the moment that I met Monty. met a dude named Monty. Do you remember this? Did I tell you about this? Yeah? Um, my, my, Monty was this homeless dude who we, we didn't encounter as we were handing out bag lunches and socks. He was just this homeless guy who was walking around Chicago. He saw a line of people, and the dude was so overjoyed with the love of God that he could not help but come up to this group of high schoolers and just start preaching the gospel to us. I was like, this is ironic. He, he was homeless and looked like a lot of the people that we had served throughout the day. And for him... All he could care about was going and telling other people about the goodness of Jesus. It's funny, all these years later, that that's what sticks out to me of that trip. It was so challenging. It continues to be challenging me. I still think about that. This man who, by the world's measure, he was, he was failing by the world's measure. And was he rich in the joy of Jesus? Complete joy, as he told us about Jesus. The cool thing was he found out that we were believers. We were like, yeah, this is what we were doing. And like his joy that we were down there, he was just like, it was awesome. It was such a, such a cool moment. When we as Christians are in the posture and the practice of repentance, when we gaze at a holy God, when we are faced with our sin, when we recognize the price that was paid for that sin, Jesus going to the cross, then conquering the grave, we cannot help but be people who overflow with the good news, the gospel. It will be shown to others. You see that in these verses? I will, I will teach transgressors and sinners your ways. He, he's explicitly saying it. Sinners will return to you. He says that his tongue will sing aloud for his righteousness. His, his mouth will declare his praise. Pray that our repentance would not just be something that we bottle up and keep just between us and God, but instead the good news that we have been given would be good news that we then share to others. What has been done to us, God wants to do through us. How many people here have heard that? Have you heard that before? I don't know, that was something I heard when I was in youth group. And it has stuck with me, and it is so true. What God has done to us, he wants to do through us. Finally, this last section. And my hope is that as we have been going through Psalm 51, we have seen that repentance is not something to be afraid of, but something to be excited about. It is something that is difficult. It is a hard process, but it is something that will, will just 
it'll light a fire up in us. All right, finally, this last section of the psalm. Uh, um, another incredible truth about what repentance um, looks like. David recognizes that the sacrifice in worship, he recognizes that sacrifice in worship in order to gain God's favor will not gain God's favor. Rather, it is the grace that God gives us that gives us favor in his eyes. Repentance leads to honest and humble worship of God. Check this out, starting in verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, in right sacrifices. the, uh, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Listen, a church whose members are in the regular habit of practicing repentance will be a church that honestly and humbly worships the Lord. Notice here that God, uh, that David says that God does not despise a contrite heart. The sacrifice that one gives does not please the Lord if the heart that gives it is rotten. And the heart that is rotten is a heart that has never gazed upon the goodness of Jesus. It is a heart that has never been changed by the Lord. This is, by the way, going full circle, why it is so important that when we think about repentance, we think about God first. It has to start with God and not with us. Otherwise, we could very easily fall into the habit of practicing a religion that just makes us feel comfortable about our sins. If it starts with us, the actions that then follow are just actions that are trying to earn God's grace or God's favor, or maybe we're just trying to feel comfortable or try to skirt past the depth of our sin and brokenness, but we cannot earn God's favor. We cannot earn God's grace. Instead, the truth is far better. The truth is that he gives it freely. He gives it out of the goodness of his heart. He gives it out of the depth of who he is. That's good news because we could never earn it. We could never live up to that demand. I'm going to wrap this sermon up. Um, the, the prompt that I was given on was to preach on a psalm that was used to challenge and encourage me in my worship. Um, and as I, as I read through this psalm this week, I was, I was challenged with just that, again. It was the first one that came to my mind a couple weeks ago when Max um, had sent out the email about it. And as I have been reading it and praying on it and reading commentaries on it and studying it, it again drives me back to this need and this reminder that I need, to be a, 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 I need to be a person who is constantly breathing in and out the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is. Um, if you want, I don't, I don't know if you guys have a, uh, a way of um, summing up the gospel. One of the things that I like to do with our youth group is I have five words that I use to describe the gospel. Um, and I know some churches do this in a different way, but... Um, what I, what I tend to do is Wednesday nights when we gather together is like I force a group of students to recite the five words that tell us the gospel, and it's usually the middle school guys because they're the ones that are usually on their phones not paying attention. I'm like, all right, guys, five words that we use to describe the gospel. 
Um, but this is helpful for me. This has always just been a helpful way for me to remember the gospel um, is this. Creation, rebellion, redemption, renewal, and glory. Creation, God created. In the beginning, God, in the beginning there was just God. And, and God, out of, out of his mercy, goodness, wisdom, created. And he created us. He created everything. We rebelled. And in that rebellion, sin entered the world and death entered the world. And there was sin against God, there was sin against brother and sister, and there was death that entered the world. But here's the thing, it, it didn't surprise God. God instead got, God instead got into uh, the work of redemption, saying, I am going to redeem this people. I am going to show my goodness and mercy towards these people in redemption. And in that process of redemption, God is constantly renewing his creation. He is bringing a people back to him, a people who, as they look to him, they recognize the brokenness of their sin, and they humble themselves before God, and then they go and they love those around them like, like none else. And there is a renewal that happens. In the end, God receives all the glory. In the end, we get to live with him in eternity. What a blessing. We need to be people who are constantly reminding ourselves of God's good news, and repentance is one of the tools that God has given us. It is a, it is a posture, it is a humility that God has given us to constantly remind us of that. And I hope that Psalm 51 has convinced you that repentance is a mandatory and joyful posture for the Christian. Mandatory and joyful just to remind you, it starts when we gaze upon God, when we look to the cross, when we look to Jesus. It causes us to acknowledge our sin and brokenness. It shows us the depth of God's grace and mercy towards us and his forgiveness. It causes us to spill over that good news to, to, to others and those around us. And, and ultimately, it results in this honest and humble worship of the Lord. May we be a people who are in the constant practice of repentance. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the infinite well of, of mercy you have shown us. Lord, my prayer for Community Church of Appleton is that we would leave here today encouraged to search for you in, in, in all things. And God, as we search for you, that you would continue to uh, reveal in us the areas where we fall short, not so that we would feel guilt, but rather that we would instead be, be people who are turned towards you. We would feel your mercy. We would feel your grace in our brokenness. God, that we would see the redemptive work that you are doing. Help us to be a part of that process. God, I pray that you would give opportunities for the gospel to be preached to each and every person who is in here this week. I pray that you would help us to see those opportunities. I pray that you would help us to just be so filled with a joy of, of who you are that we couldn't help but spill it over. God, you are so good. We love you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.